The Start On Demand. On demand. Matt Nichols out for the year. Lots of football talk today on the podcast. Bob Irving joins us to tee up Friday night's game against Hamilton at IG Field. And Bob Cameron going into the Ring of Honor. He joined us as well. Day of Retribution is how the headline starts. Toronto van attack suspect describes hatred towards women as motive. We'll hear some of that video and get a couple of perspectives on what was said and what went into the planning of the attack. And we'll meet Winnipeg native Dr. Jen Gunter, who has written a book called The Vagina Bible. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Friday, September 27th podcast for The Start. It is game day, Bombers and Hamilton Tiger Cats tonight. That's exciting, and we have tickets to give away at 7.37, but the Bombers were handed some potentially devastating news yesterday, Greg Mack. Yeah, Matt Nichols is done for the season. He's going to, well, he went underwent shoulder surgery, and uh, he will not return for the Blue Bombers. So it's up to Chris Streveler now to lead the Blue Bombers to the promised land, at, you know, Strevler's been doing some good things, and the Bombers, well, we all know what happened in Montreal last week. For three quarters, they were the better team in that game. Looking to bounce back tonight. Bombers got to find another experienced quarterback, because if Chris Strevler gets injured, it's all done. And most of us remember the 2007 Grey Cup when Kevin Glenn got injured. And broke his arm in the and 2007. Had to come in. Ryan Dinwiddie yeah. had to play in the Grey Cup after basically, I think he played like 14 plays in the regular season. So, uh, for as excited I, as I am for what this team can do overall without a seasoned backup quarterback. Now, they said in their statement yesterday that, they, that he's obviously been working on rehab, Nichols, and they got right. to the point where that rehab wasn't going to. Wasn't going to fix. They needed to have the surgery. Sure. So they're obviously been monitoring it, I would guess, minute by minute. I would think. So someone behind the scenes somewhere is is digging deep for a quarterback right now. Well, I sure hope so. There's a trade deadline coming up in a couple of weeks here in the CFL. So maybe they look to one of the teams that are out of the playoffs for a quarterback. I don't know what they're going to do, but they're going to have to address this situation. Bob Irving is going to join us with more at 9.05. And once again, we have tickets to give away at 7.37 before the couch potatoes assemble. And Mark Chipman is trying to assemble businesses and politicians. What's going on there? Well, he's, I think, like so many people in the downtown, they got a huge stake in the downtown, not just with the Jets, but with the True North Towers, with their developments there. And uh, he's spoken exclusively to Global's, or say GOB's Richard Clute this week, to express his frustrations with safety in the area, with public intoxication, but to also say, hey, man, don't worry. We've been working hard on a plan, and they've come up with a plan, a group of stakeholders. uh, They're calling themselves a wellness and safety alliance, and they want to build a treatment facility just outside the downtown to help our meth addicts, our alcoholics, anybody with a drug or substance abuse, because they basically are saying enough's enough. That the, that the solution lies in us all working together and not putting our head in the sand. Uh, almost a one-stop shop for those with these addictions. Uh, 
dare I say, similar to what we were discussing yesterday, just a a, a safe detox site and a long-term detox site for those that want to get help, those that need help. And I was just saying, as we were coming on the air, I've listened to all the segments and all the audio uh, that Richard Kluche collected in his conversations with Mark Chipman. And I have to tell you, uh, maybe I'm a sucker on this, (laughs) but I feel a little bit more hopeful that someone with Mark Chipman's influence, and I and I have a sense of who else is in that in that group that's on board with this. I feel a lot more hopeful today, maybe than I did yesterday or the day before, that we are going to tackle this crisis. I don't know if we can win, but you can't win without trying. And it feels as though the right people are putting the correct foot forward and are at least trying to do something. They've done their homework on this, and I can't wait to share with you all the things that they're talking about doing. Well, for the first time since his arrest, we are hearing directly from the Toronto van attack suspect. A publication ban has been lifted on Alec Manassian's interrogation by police following the April 23rd, 2018 massacre. It has been released ahead of a trial, which comes in February. And as Brianna Carnegie tells us, hours after allegedly mowing down pedestrians with a rented van, Manassian calmly told Toronto police he was part of a community of young men angry they could not attract women. Alec Manassian wanted to contribute to something he calls the incel rebellion. He outlines the inspiration of Elliot Rogers' 2014 California attack, which killed six people and punished women for depriving him of sex. I felt it was time to take action and not just sit on the sidelines and to just uh, fester in my own sadness. Manassian tells police he had communicated online with Roger and wished him luck when learning of his mission. The 25-year-old openly discusses his frustration with women of never having a girlfriend or an intimate relationship. I was angry that they would... um give their love and affection to obnoxious boots. The majority of the Toronto van attack victims were women. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. Global's Andrew Russell has listened extensively to the roughly four-hour video and joins us now to explain what else was in it and what it says about this incel community. Manassian references Elliot Roger, Andrew, and for listeners not familiar with that story and his misogynist manifesto. Tell us a bit more and a a good morning to you. And thank you for joining us, Andrew. Thank you for having me. So uh, for some people who might remember, Elliot Rogers was a young man who killed six people in 2014, just outside the campus of the University of California. And shortly uh, before he launched his his stabbing and shooting attack, uh, he released a this sort of rambling, misogynistic manifesto online where he described himself as as an incel and, as you, you heard off the top there, it's a, this extreme hatred and anger towards uh, women over feelings of um, being rejected. Despite that anger that he says he was clearly feeling and, and the rejection and the frustration, what really stands out in this video, which you can see on globalnews.ca, cjob.com, is just how calmly Manassian speaks to police and outline how he, you know, drove down the street, just decided to start hitting people. And what stopped him, remarkably, is says a drink landed on his van. And so he decided to stop there with his attack. It, it's remarkable. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, the interview occurred, um, you know, roughly seven to, to, to nine hours after the attack. 
and going through the four-hour video as he sits there, at, you know, at some point just crossing his legs or just sitting there sort of just very calmly with the detective. Uh, it is it is quite chilling as he describes how he, you know, drove down a, a busy street just striking person after person. And then, yeah, said he had to pull over because um, at some point a drink splashed across his windshield and he was worried about losing visibility. So, yeah, it was, uh, it's, it's quite a, a jarring um, video. I understand that the, the interview itself actually strengthens the case to call this an act of terrorism. Why is that? So we, we're, not actually, we're not actually sure if any of the charges are going to be upgraded, but it, it does sort of provide more details, you know, towards this motive of specifically why he did what he did. Now, it's, you know, it's still, there's a, there's a trial coming up in February, uh, we've heard from national security experts before. One of the reasons why they felt or possibly why there wasn't any terror charges laid originally is because he's already facing 10 counts of murder, 16 counts of attempted murder. So there might be some redundancy there. But you do see in this video sort of the alleged motive described in great detail. With that motive and the impetus, or I guess the the, the person, uh, Elliot Rogers, who helped lead him down this path, we've talked a lot in the in the months since this attack about the incel movement. What have we learned in the sense of what's out there in this community and what concern there might be for other incidents like this when we speak of Alec Manassian? So one thing that we've learned is that there is sort of great concern, especially with some of the messaging boards that he talks about. One of the main ways he first communicated with Elliot Rogers was through a messaging board called 4chan. Now, uh, 4chan did for a long time have a large sort of messaging board. You can message people anonymously. They had a specific sort of subgroup of the incel community. That's been shut down. But what came out of that was a separate messaging board called 8chan. Now, 8chan, for some people that might have heard in the news recently, the shootings in El Paso and the, um, the, uh, the terror attack in Christchurch, in both those cases, the attackers released a manifesto on there describing their hate. So there's this like, we are seeing that some of these online groups of, like is a breeding ground for, for hate and some uh, extremist uh, ideology that we see. Andrew, thanks for disseminating a lot of this for us and going through this with a fine tooth comb. And, uh, you know, you mentioned how cold and, and calculated he was in, in doing this. Uh, so maniacal. And when he sits and you mentioned the fact he's got his legs crossed at one point, he's got a bottled water. He reaches for that bottled water so calmly cool and collected in certain parts of that video that's up at globalnews.ca. We appreciate your time this morning, Andrew. Thank you for this. Thank you for having me. Mackling, McGarry, McNabb, Jeff Braun is here. Kelly Moore. Is Kelly Moore joining us? I'm not entirely sure if Kelly's going to come in. Jeff Fortes and Master Control. And we want to talk about something. We want to follow up something we did yesterday. So I guess this conversation really started on Wednesday where we were talking about villains and or how we like to see Sometimes we like to watch people fall. That transitioned into a conversation about athletes who would come into your city and you hated when they would come into your city, but you would also be happy to welcome them to your team if they were traded, like Willie Jefferson, for example, Greg. We referenced him yesterday. That's right. So yesterday we had a chat about who are the real 
life villains in your world, whether it's an athlete you hate or maybe it was an old teacher or principal. And today we want to know who is your favorite villain. And you can weigh in on Facebook, you can weigh in on Instagram or on text 204-780-6868. Getting a lot of suggestions here. So Jeff Braun, I want to start with you, co-host of The Couch Potatoes. Like it's, favorite fictional movie villain, you mean, right? Yeah, movie, right. TV, comic books, whatever. Books? Yep. Uh, I picked, um, well, I would, I don't know if it's my favorite. There's It's a tie for 30, like 30 different villains, right? So, <laughs> But one that I really like and I found really entertaining was Javier Bardem as Anton Chigurh in the Coen Brothers masterpiece, No Country for Old Men. Mm. You know how this is going to turn out, don't you? Nope. I think you do. So this is what I'll offer. You bring me the money and I'll let her go. Otherwise, she's accountable. The same as you. That's the best deal you're going to get. I won't tell you you can save yourself. Because you can't. Just chilling. chilling. Yeah, so chilling. I I forgot how <laughs> terrifying he was. He was really. Yeah, you know, it's the creepiest thing I've ever seen, and it's just. Ugh, it's he, just. <laughs> he actually makes the list too because I was looking this morning of just like what what Hollywood has decided some of the best vet yeah. or villains are, and he's on a lot of people's top ten. It's, Won an Oscar for it. Yeah, it's kind of. I wonder <laughs> if you were in his house if you were. Who dates him? Is, is it not... Um, Penelope Cruz? I think so. At one time, like if, if, maybe not. If I don't know. he so. comes home, if you watch that movie, would you just not be scared of him for the rest of the night? Like, I, I would don't want to lay next to you right now. I would say now. you need to speak uh, in a more upbeat tone and faster. <laughs> yeah. You cannot use that voice can anymore. you like, adopt a falsetto or something for the next two weeks just so I can get past the killer thing that you Are you, you going channeled? to pick up dinner or should I? <laughs> and if he calls you, ever calls you friendo, then you yeah. just got to run. Run, run away. Eve texted Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory, Ooh. his favorite villain. So I'm glad that uh, you ended up picking who you did, Jeff, because I had a feeling that we might end up picking the same one, but we didn't. Here's mine. Mr. Takaki. I could talk about industrialization and men's fashions all day, but I'm afraid work must intrude, and my associate Theo has some questions for you. Sort of fill in the blanks questions, actually. Hans Gruber from Die Hard. That was my backup. That was your backup. That was my backup. Well, we'll get. We'll find out who Forte's favorite is in a moment. But Greg, someone texted us actually just a moment ago about Alan Rickman, who yeah. played Hans Gruber. Yeah, said uh, played the best vi- uh, villains: Alan Rickman, uh, Robin Hood, Quigley Down Under, and of course one of the Die Hard. Movies, for example, and, and Professor Snape. Yes, Severus yes. Snape in the Harry Potter films. Of course. Yeah. Dang. Now, do you have two or three villains in your mind that one might be from your childhood and one might be from today? Because for me, it's still the Wicked Witch of the West stands out. Really? Like, yeah. You liked her? No, like I didn't <laughs> like her, but I still think about it. So then it's like <laughs> must, spent, it must be some sort of dark part in your mind. I can't remember her like, name. That actress spent the rest of her life with children crying and screaming that's and right. pointing whenever she went in. Yeah, you can't that. look at her and yeah. not see just evil. Oh wow, that would be terrible to have to <laughs> yeah. have that burden follow you around. Jeff Forte, you met, you said Die Hard, Alan Rickman, Hans Gruber is your backup. Yes, I even had the had a clip of him too, <laughs> ready to go just in case. Um, and I was thinking about like Disney villains, like how many Disney villains are there? Tons, but uh, I think I would have to go with a census taker once tried to test me. Classic. I ate his liver with some fava beans. 
Oh, yeah. And a nice Chianti. <laughs> Fortune just made that face too. Oh, he made the face oh, while he did it. Yes, yes. Right <laughs> no, like, but he's so good because, like, what is he? A psychologist or a psychiatrist? Psychiatrist. So, Cannibal. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing. Like, people. he can get into your head, and you know, and he's a cannibal, and he, he has this class about him too. You know, he likes the painting. He likes the classic music. So, so do you weirdly like him at the end of that movie? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Like you're rooting for him to just take off and I'm eat some more people in the streets that of Jeff Spain. Forte works on uh, the other side of the glass here. <laughs> <laughs> but that's one of the, that's one of the, what makes I think uh, sometimes makes a great villain is is when they are complex enough that you sort of end up rooting for them. Like that's why I think the antihero has become so popular. You sure. look at guys like Tony Soprano and Walter White. We end up kind of rooting for the bad guy. And uh, obviously Hannibal Lecter, you don't necessarily root for him, but there's he's got, he's got this charm and this yeah. uh, magnetic personality. Somewhat sympathetic? Is that l- stretching it a little too far? But he'll get into or? your head. That's well, yes, well, yeah. that's, that's how he does what he does. Mackling, who's yours? Well, for me, it's funny because I, I had lunch with someone yesterday who said, you didn't mention Egghead and all those egg puns you were doing yesterday. You didn't work Egghead from Batman into the conversation, but it did remind me that uh, Catwoman is my favorite villain, and I think Batman's favorite villain also. Uh, this is not because of the villain. What? What do you mean? <laughs> we name, who's name, the sexiest villain? Name is. one crime that Catwoman committed. <laughs> yeah. like. uh, she stole Batman's heart. <laughs> Doing the Batuzi and all that. Now I'm going, of course, to the 1960s TV series, not the uh, the movies. So uh, Eartha Kitt, by the way, I think would be my favorite of the uh, cat women that would be available for this. One of our listeners said Boris Badenov from Rocky and Bullwinkle. I thought that was really good. Newman yeah. from Seinfeld. Yeah, that was Herb. Uh, thanks, Herb, for the Boris text. The iceberg uh, from Titanic. <laughs> so cold, ice cold. That, ice that cold. villain. Um, I wanted to. I almost picked Jaws, the shark, but yeah. Thanks a lot. He doesn't have a lot of good lines in that show. <laughs> Joffrey from Game of Thrones. Another suggestion, Loren. Who's yours? Well, I was trying. I feel terrible. I don't have this clip ready, but I was trying to find my favorite one from Dwight Schrute because he's he's the antihero who I come to like at the end. Yeah. So I'm picking him more as a he was picked on so much in the office because he's so annoying. He's like that office worker who always wants to be right. He's like my nemesis from university, like Dwight Schrute. But then by the end, you just you love him because he tries so hard. Like he's trying so hard to be normal. Nope, didn't like him at all. Oh, never liked do. him, never came around on what him. What kind of bear is best, Greg? <laughs> I don't <False>. know. <laughs> <laughs> Text us 204-780-6868. Darth Maul. From Phantom Menace. Star Wars Episode 1. He was cool. Uh, another listener saying my favorite is the Phantom in Phantom of the Opera. J.R. Ewing? I oh, like some is of that these. Dallas? Dallas? Yeah, from yeah. Dallas. The Joker, of course, and... Newman. Newman. This is a great opportunity for our community to come together uh, at the political level and at the, you know, the in, in, in the private sector 
to partner up. Mackling, McGarry, McNabb, and Mark, as in Mark Chipman, who had a conversation this week with Richard Cloutier, who joins us now in studio. Richard, good morning. Good morning. Spent about an hour with Mark Chipman, talking about a whole range of things, but focusing in on the issue that I've been bugging him to talk about for a couple of years now. Very quietly behind the scenes, and we all know the story. We are so good at talking about the problem, right? Of chronic alcohol abuse, of drug abuse, and the fact is for Chipman, he comes in and sees one of those portable potties that construction workers use toppled over. And the hand sanitizer emptied out of it because it's going up somebody's nose or, you know, those types of issues. So the focus in this piece is solutions. How do we actually solve this problem? And you quickly find out that we are so behind the times in Winnipeg compared to other cities. Uh, So Winnipeg Police Service, some of the other people involved in this, the addictions front, the healthcare front, the indigenous front, get in a van, they go west, they go to Saskatoon, they go to Edmonton, they go to Calgary. What are they doing there with success? They go to Minneapolis and they find out that there's a a hub, there's a a drop-in facility, a treatment facility, but it's much more than that. It's also about community workers working in the streets. It's not firefighters, it's not paramedics, it's not police officers. Our resources here are just tied up so often and other cities have a different approach. So Chipman, like so many of us and people that work and live downtown, and yes, Chipman is one of the captains of industry downtown, but he says there's got to be got to be a better way. Range of services and are a continuum, right? And there's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all uh, set of solutions for, uh, for these folks. But to the extent that you can put together the 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 entire range of solutions that they might need and you can do it in a ideally a singular location chances of breaking away from that chronic condition are improved and i mean that has been proven what we do here is well-intentioned and it's and it's i mean and people are the people that do this work wherever they might be are are working their uh, their tails off to do the right things and and you know are having success in in ways but not in a, a way I think that could be achieved if if we changed our whole paradigm if we changed the whole way of looking at this instead of it being as it's traditionally been such a justice focused a, a law enforcement and um, and and justice focus to a health paradigm because that's really what this is this is a health condition that has justice implications, but it, it really is a health condition that we don't have the proper continuum of resources lined up to deal with right now. Yesterday, we had a conversation with Dane Bourget from Jibstop and this whole idea, Richard, of, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to arrest our way out of this. We've heard that from Danny Smythe and Dane says, hold on. It was incarceration that turned my life around. Are we talking about a facility that might be an intermediate step between what Main Street Project is doing and what might happen in, in an institution like a, like a penitentiary? Way more than this. And in fact, your community court would be located in this facility as well. So what would happen right now is that if you become uh, part of the criminal justice system, you have that opportunity to go through a community court, get linked up with a, with a, a, a justice or a, a worker. 
in this case, you have a hub, and this requires the change in provincial legislation. Um, because, uh, Greg Mackling, let's say you were that community outreach worker here. Right now, you can't say to somebody, I'm going to detain you and take you to the Main Street project to, to dry out, to sober up. In this case, you have provincial legislation, and the Pallister government is quite receptive to this. They get this now. They're quite receptive to this. You change the legislation, you give some form of peace officer status to that individual. So suddenly, there's a range of solutions that they can employ. If it's bad, we can take you to Health Sciences Centre. If you need to be um, connected to and, and, and maybe detained for a while, we can take you to that facility without having to call the cops. How often have we all seen, and we've done stories, where seven, eight, nine police cars are lined up at the Main Street Project trying to process somebody? And that is hours and hours off the streets when they could be actually investigating the real crimes in our community. So this is a healthcare solution, but this is also changing legislation to allow these people to do the good work, the trained work that they're supposed to do. They have training in mental health and, and other issues that the frontline officers don't necessarily have. So they've come together. They're pitching a $40 million facility, multifaceted, $25 million a year to run. Who pays for this? Well, you do achieve some savings um, when it comes to investing that $25 million. When you look at all the dollars that are spent in response for police, for fire and ambulance, and other agencies. So you coordinate that. So on the operating side, you do save that money. For that $40 million dollars, Chipman's going to be talking today at the Winnipeg Chamber of Commerce. If we are actually going to solve this problem in the city of Winnipeg, there needs to be the private sector involved in this, like we've seen with Bruce Oak. You know, this is not just one treatment center and we can say, oh, we've solved the problem. What Chipman is saying is that we have to really roll up our sleeves and we have to put our big boy pants on and start to tackle this issue in a real way. And that's Chipman coming out and finally saying, Winnipeg... There's another way that is successful in other cities. So let's have that conversation now. Considering it's a downtown issue in the sense for Chipman and the business owners down there, but it's a bigger issue for Winnipeg. Does the facility, if it comes to fruition, go downtown or does it go elsewhere? I mean, where does it happen? The business plan has it at 190 Disraeli. I would argue that given the issues around the library and Portage Place, that you know maybe this facility should be closer to downtown. But it's not just a bricks and mortar thing. It's an attitude thing. It's also these community outreach workers. It's looking at this whole issue, not through the justice paradigm, but through the healthcare paradigm. Any frustration with him in the sense of the time it's taken to get here? Absolutely. I think there's a lot of frustration by a whole host of agencies, from our police chief to the fire chief, to healthcare workers, to indigenous leaders. And this, they say, is the opportunity to actually do something. Thank you very much, Jeff Braun, Mackling, McGarry and McNabb coming up after Global News at 9 o'clock. Bob Irving joins us to tee up tonight's Bomber game. And it comes on the heels of the news that Matt Nichols, quarterback Matt Nichols, done for the season after shoulder surgery. So stand by for that. And you can keep those text messages coming in on your favorite villains at 204-780-6868. Somebody suggested Nicolas Cage in Face Off. I'm going to take his face off. Doesn't that, that doesn't that turn into John Travolta playing Nicolas Cage yeah. and Nicolas Cage playing John Travolta? Correct. Yes, okay. So you can make an argument that they are both the villains 
for that. So keep those coming in at 204-780-6868. Right now, we're certainly talking to no villain, a hero for many in this great city. Yeah, Bob Cameron, he's going into the Ring of Honor tonight. And just a few statistics for you. I played for the Bombers from 1980 till 2003, 23 years as a punter for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, 394 regular season games. He retired at the age of 48. Not quite Freedom 55, Bob, but it's pretty close. <laughs> uh, see, I was trying to actually make it to 50 because then I collect my pension, the Blue Bobber pension, <laughs> and play at the same time. And the guys were starting to call me Senator Cameron because that's what they do, isn't it? Senators? I think, yeah, they double dip as well. Classic double dipping. I love it. Well, and of course, Ottawa uh, and uh, and, uh, you are intrinsically entwined because you were the outstanding Canadian in the Grey Cup the Bombers won in 1988. uh, Outstanding Canadian punting into that crazy win for two quarters. So uh, three-time Grey Cup champion. Great to have you on the show, Bob. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. So why don't we start by asking you, Bob, uh, because we've been talking about villains and arch nemeses this week. Does a punter, could a, can a punter have a nemesis? Boy, I, I really don't think so. I mean, that, that's the thing about punting. Really, you're, you're a specialist on a team sport, and um, your job is pretty well defined. You, you do the best you possibly can. And what I always tried to do was beat the punter on the other team. If I out-punted the punter on the other team. That gave us an op- a better opportunity to win the football game, and really that was my job. So, no, I, I, I didn't. I hated the other, not the other punters, I guess, the returners, if they went by me, if they caught my punt. Then I hated them. I guess the Gizmo Williams for, for Edmonton would be my nemesis then, I guess. See, we were able to talk that all out. We That's came right. down with Gizmo. In that scenario, in the last second, when that when that returner is making it to you and you think, oh, no, I'm the last man standing here. <laughs> yeah. What goes through your head? Uh, not, nothing good. Let's put it that way. It's good. I, I can't really say it on the air. Just, I'm going, oh, no. I. But you know what? I, there was one punt returner we, we had that told me, he said, okay, here's what you do. He said, if the guy ever breaks through, and there's no one pursuing him on either side that you can force him into and try to get him to like, you don't want to make the tackle if you can possibly help it, especially when you're in your forties. So he says, here's what you do. The guy's coming towards you. He's about 10 yards away. Run right at him. You'll never expect it. And you know what? I tackled two guys doing that. Like they sort of panicked. They sort of stumbled a bit. I dove at him and I barely got a piece of it. And then other guys tackled them. It was unbelievable. So yeah, I, yeah, I, I got a couple of tackles. I got credit. Let's put it that way. They passed themselves down. I think that's what happened. Now, the, Bob, yeah. you're kind of being hard on yourself here because you were the Heck Creighton Award winner as a quarterback as the most outstanding university player. And so I guess you're not available to back up Chris Strevler for the rest of the season yeah. first. <laughs> Question? Yeah, I, I I was gonna. I thought about putting a phone call into the Bombers, and then I thought, well, maybe not. I, yeah, <laughs> no, no it, that that wasn't. I didn't think that was gonna happen. But yeah, that that's just terrible. You know that. Um, you know the, the injuries like that. You know you can never prepare for them, and once you're starting quarterback, that's just uh, terrible. As I, as I say, I'm a huge Bomber fan. I I got season tickets, and um, you know seeing seeing that happen is is really disheartening. But I, I think Scrabble can do the job. I'm really excited that the guy's got some unbelievable talent that you, you never see in a quarterback with his skills is being able to run and throw like that. So the guy's got a rally behind him, and this is it. This is the big push to the Grey Cup this year. 
So one of the other things maybe some people might not realize is that you actually got cut by the Bombers once upon a time. Cal Murphy I, gave you a pink slip, right? <laughs> you know, I got cut twice, actually. And the worst of that, that one was just a a roster move to bring on other players from, from Edmonton. That's uh, that's how they brought on Willard Reeves. It was in the training camp of 1983. And um, they actually cut Trevor Kennard and myself so they could bring guys off these these guys who just got cut. It's sort of complicated. But anyways, that was the reason. Then I got right back on. So I never missed a game in 83. But the worst one was 1980, the fourth game of the year. I had tried out for all these teams, 77, 78, 79, got cut by all of them. Never played it down until my, my fourth year trying out. And we're in Hamilton. And after, I, I get tickets from my high school football coach, all my buddies from high school. We only li- I only live 10, year, 10 miles away from the stadium. My parents are coming to the game. And after the pregame meal, like this is four hours before game time. Ray off the head coach, Cassie on the shoulder. Yeah, you're cut. We brought another, another punter. Come on. Oh, and I just go, no, you can't be serious. Yeah. Did you go back for and seconds so, at least afterwards? I mean, you're already oh, there. I, you know, people threw up, let's be honest with you. I'm just going, no, this can't be happening. I remember saying to him, can I come back and compete against this guy? Yeah, sure, Bob, yeah, do that. But, and to, to Ray Ock's credit, you know, I, I always I hammer him for that one, but not many coaches, after they cut you, would bring you back the next week and cut that guy. And without going, you know, usually it's, a situation where they just go on and say, you know what, this guy's not good enough. We got rid of him. We're not going back to him. And he did. And you know, I'm, I'm eternally grateful because that was the last time I missed the game from 1980 to, uh, I guess it was 2000. So 20 years later. September. I, I didn't even miss an exhibition game. September 16th, 2000, to be specific, Bob. Hey, Bob, we've run out of time. We look forward to seeing on the field tonight. Congratulations on this. It's an honor well-earned and and perhaps overdue, but, uh, you know, you're just desserts for sure. Thanks for this, and uh, we'll see you tonight. I'll be there. Thanks. Hours after allegedly mowing down pedestrians with a rented van, Alec Manassian told Toronto police he was part of an, quote, incel community of young men angry they could not attract women. Referring to his rented rider van as a, quote, tool for rebellion, the 26-year-old said he was an involuntary celibate or incel and described his goal as shaking, quote, the foundations of the world. Quote, I feel like I accomplished my mission. Manassian responded when a detective asked him how he felt that 10 people had died in the April 23rd, 2018 attack. Eight of those killed were women and another 16 people were injured. The videotaped confession had been the subject of a publication ban, but the Ontario court lifted that prohibition today, allowing news outlets to report on its content. To be honest, the only reason I stopped my attack was because someone's drink got splashed on my uh, windshield and I was worried that I would uh, crash the van anyway, so I decided, okay, now I I wanted to do more, but I've kind of been foiled by a lack of visibility. I see a patrol car pull over and I hear the cops screaming at me to get out. An exchange with Toronto Police Constable Ken Lamb captured on iPhone video. Your plan was to die by suicide by cop. I reached into my pocket with my left hand and quickly pulled it out and formed my hand into the shape of a gun like this. Okay. Um, with the hope that he would panic and shoot me. So he explains why he got down on the ground. If I'm going to live, 
I'd rather not encounter physically a painful experience, so I decided I have no choice but to admit defeat at that point. Manassian was handcuffed and arrested. Not the usual everyday experience. Ten people died, 16 were injured. I feel like uh, I accomplished my mission. If the families of those people who were murdered and were injured were in this room right now, what would you say to them? I honestly don't know what I would say. Global's Karen Lieberman joins us to talk about Manassian's stone-cold confession from Toronto. Good morning, Karen. Good morning to you. This is uh, just chilling to hear how calm, cool, and collected Manassian's is in this discussion with the Toronto police. What's your takeaway on that front? Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right. <clears throat> I mean, I, I listened to the whole three to four hour tape. I read the transcript, and you know, it's it's as if he's describing a, a home renovation. I mean, it's so carefully detailed. It's it's disturbing to hear. Obviously, it's triggering for this entire city of Toronto. Um, so many people had witnessed, and then of course, so many people fell victim to to the events of that day. Um, I mean, everything anybody probably wanted to know is is on that video. This is Alec Manassian detailing, you know, his life from almost five years ahead of April 23rd, 2018, when, as you talked about earlier, he identified as incel, which is involuntary celibate, talks about his resentment toward women who choose to date, in his words, obnoxious men, um, how it kind of culminated at this Halloween house party that he went to when he tried to socialize with some women who laughed at him. And it was that rage that was growing within him, he talks about, and and how he found a group of like-minded men, including, by the way, Elliot Roger, who would later go on to commit a murderous rampage of his own in California, in which six people were killed. And that, for Manassian, was the moment, he, as he says, he became radicalized. Listening to the tape and hearing, you know, the radicalization of him and, and what happened and what it led him to do, you can't help and sit and think, well, who else is out there is thinking or feeling this way? What have we learned about the groups like this, the forums, the chats that they go on and, and who's watching this to make sure like this doesn't happen again? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, to think that he was doing that for years, he was involved in this group, you know, which is anonymous. So, um, you know, so much of the information that's out there, I'm not sure who, which authorities are able to follow up on, but this was the path that he took. Um, and it's, 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 it's very jarring about how he just describes it all in such a nonchalant kind of way, which your listeners just sort of got to, to listen to. I mean, um, just the information that he, that he provides, the detail, you know, where he was when he made the call to Ryder. It's so matter of fact. You know, I was at Seneca College in the library when I made a call. You know, he's asked about, you know, why he chose that date. He wanted to finish his final exams. Like so much of it, you know, you just kind of like you're scratching your head listening to it all. How much planning did he put into this? Um, he says that the actual planning started, you know, at the college in the library that day, which would have been a month before the attack. He talks about why he chose a van. He says that it would be large enough to inflict severe damage. Um, again, about that date that he wanted to finish his exams. He talks about the morning of, and this, this part really stood out to me. You know, it started at 7 a.m. He woke up. He ate his breakfast and he brushed his teeth. It's just so many of these details. You know, he says nothing unusual happened. And then the most 
unusual thing, you know, that you can possibly imagine happened, you know, that Toronto never imagined would happen. Um, he talks about how he knew he was going to go to Young Street. He, you know, had taken that exit. And then when he gets to the area where it, where it occurred, which is this very popular intersection in Toronto in North York called Young and Finch, that he knew the area would be busy, hadn't necessarily decided that that would be, you know, where he would, in his word, you know, in his words, carry out this rebel- rebellious act, but that he waited for the light to turn green and that's when he, you know, stepped on the pedal and went. And then also so sort of unbelievable to me is that at the very end, the reason he says his attack was foiled and the reason he pulled over was that someone's drink had spilled on his dash, on the windshield rather, and so it was affecting his visibility. And that's why he pulled the van over. He didn't want to crash it, so he pulled the van over. That was the moment we were listening to this morning where we both, Greg and I, were listening to that and thought, my God, like, what was, mm-hmm. what is what is going on here? And so if we're feeling that, I can only imagine what the families of these victims must be going through this morning when they, they hear this taped confession from Alec Manassi. And what do we know about their reaction? I know we've made every effort to contact families in the lead up to this, Karen. Uh, are they reacting yet this morning? That's right. I know one of our colleagues here had spoken to the brother of Anne-Marie D'Amico, who was one of the 10 victims. Um, and he, you know, I think he felt that, it, I think he was slightly uncomfortable with the release of the video. Um, but we haven't really heard from many others, to be quite honest. Um, but it's, I think it's really important to explain why the video is being released now, because the information is so triggering. And this was a decision by a Toronto judge, Justice Anne Malloy, um, Um, And she decided, um, among other reasons, that it could be made public because it's an attack that affected the entire city. That's exactly what she said. Um, You know, Manassian's lawyer did not want the statement and video released. He had the publication ban placed in effect. But in her decision, Justice Malloy explained that it'd be hard to imagine in Toronto a witness being called who doesn't already know that Manassian drove a van down a Toronto sidewalk and that, in her words, the people of Toronto are entitled to know what evidence is being presented at trial. They're entitled to acquire that knowledge, not after the trial happens, but now. And also important to note as well that this is a judge-only trial. So um, at the end of the day, it's about Manassian's state of mind. It's not a case of who done it. Global's Karen Lieberman joining us live on 680-CJOB to talk about Alec Manassian's confession and his attack, the Toronto van attack. Karen, thank you very much for this. Thank you. And if you want to read more, the headline is Day of Retribution. Toronto van attack suspect describes hatred towards women as motive. We have linked the story from globalnews.ca to our 680-CJOB Instagram story if you want to follow us there. We've been talking about your favorite villains, and we've narrowed it down. Out of these four villains, who would you like to have lunch with? And your choices are Darth Vader, Joker, Hannibal Lecter, and Dwight Schrute from The Office. Close race so far for first place, Darth Vader leading with 42%, the Joker at 37 in a close second. Surprisingly, more people would want to have lunch with Hannibal Lecter than Dwight Schrute. Mm. (laughs) What does that say about you, Loren McNabb? I don't know. What do you think it says about me? I'm not sure because I think you would pick Shroot, right? I did right? pick Shroot. Yeah. yeah. That means I'd get to have lunch with him because nobody else wants to. It means I win. Does Vader have to take off the helmet to have lunch? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I guess. how does he consume his food? Yeah, I think it's all done intravenously. <sighs> well, hey, let's ask our, our next guest here, Bob Irving. Hey, putting you on the spot, who's your favorite villain from movies or TV or books or what have you? 
Well, I heard you guys talking about that earlier on the show, and it would have to be Anthony Hopkins and Hannibal Lecter, and I wouldn't mind having lunch with him as long as he stays away from my liver. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a dangerous uh, gambit going for lunch with Hannibal Lecter. He's an excellent yeah. cook, but uh, you, A, you don't know what he's serving, and B, right. you don't know if you're going to end up his dessert. Next. Yeah. Well, he'll have a fine Chianti with it, though, won't he? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Bob Irving maybe needs to make a guest appearance on the Couch Potatoes, showing his uh, movie knowledge. Your football knowledge is what you're known for, though, Bob. And as if we didn't have enough to talk about going into tonight's game against Hamilton, you've got uh, the number one team in the East versus the team that's time for first place in the West. The Blue Bombers trying to recapture the magic of of the first three quarters, at least of last Saturday's game in, in Montreal and to bury the demons of what happened in that fourth quarter news last night that Matt Nichols is now done for the season. What, what, what does that do? Does that cast a, a pall on the blue bombers and, and what they're going out to do tonight a little bit? Uh, well, yeah, the timing of it, I guess, uh, probably not the greatest, although we knew when, when Nichols got hurt six weeks ago, you know, the Bombers were hopeful that, that rehab would work and he'd be able to come back and play again this year. But they knew at the time that there was also a possibility he might require surgery. They delayed it, as they say, hoping that uh, that he could recover and play some, but it became clear that the rehab wasn't going to be the answer. And so they're having the surgery, and that leaves it up to Chris Strebler now uh, to quarterback the team with Sean McGuire as his backup and a third young quarterback they brought in last week, uh, the only ones they have on the roster. So uh, it's the, it's the Strebler show now from here until the end of the year when everybody's got their fingers crossed that he remains upright because, you know, I think, Greg, he can handle things and the Bombers still have a shot at at winning it all with him at quarterback, uh, if anything happened to him, boy, oh boy, that would really be, a, uh, I think, a, a death blow for the Bombers as much as they like Sean McGuire. So, yeah, it's added a little something to the drama going into the final five games of the year, and it starts tonight with the Bombers trying, as you say, to erase the horrible memories of that loss in Montreal and knock off the top team in the league, the 10-3 and Ticats. So what... When we look to tonight's game and that ability sort of shake things off, has that long been removed from their thoughts, uh, that stunning loss last week? Or have they moved on? Yeah, I think the disappointment of it, Loren, uh, you know, they've shaken that off and, and you have to move on. You can't sort of wallow in your sorrow, but they, <laughs> I know they haven't mm-hmm. forgotten it. And they're looking for some form of redemption tonight, or at least to prove to people that what happened in that fourth quarter in Montreal was an aberration, and that's not the real Blue Bomber defense. So I think they're motivated by that, fired up by it. There's no question in my mind, having talked to the players, you know, as much as they put it behind them, uh, a lot of them keep bringing it up when they when they talk about what they're going to do to Hamilton tonight. Jeremiah Mazzoli got injured in a game against the Blue Bombers in Hamilton earlier this year. Dane Evans came in, didn't look super impressive, but the Tiger Cats managed to hold on and beat the Blue Bombers. And the Tiger Cats have really done not much else than win since that game against the Blue Bombers. Uh, Dane Evans uh, better than we imagined, Bob? Well, he's been really, really good. You know, when you lose your your top guy, you hope that the backup can come in and kind of hold the fort. And I would say Dane Evans has done more than that. They have a very good defense too, Greg, which is a big part of what they do. And they've got an outstanding kick return game with uh, Speedy Banks uh, 
uh, leading the way. Uh, you know, they're just very good all around, uh, defense, offense, and special teams. But Evans has been a great story, like Arbuckle was in Calgary, like Chris Strebler is here to a degree. Uh, these backup quarterbacks in the CFL have really, I think, uh, given fans a you know, lots to get excited about in the future. But the Bombers will be out to disrupt Evans tonight and see if they can't make still a young quarterback uh, make some mistakes and help them win the game. Hey, Bob, uh, just putting the game aside for a moment, we talked to Bob Cameron earlier uh, just after 8 o'clock. Yep. Legendary punter who's going into the Ring of Honor tonight at halftime. Such a long career. What was it, Greg, 23 years? Correct. Yeah. That's, uh, is that kind of longevity uh, common in the CFL? It's uncommon in any sport that exists on the planet, and I think it's a tribute to Bob and uh, what a great kicker he was. Tw- imagine that, 23 years. Uh, you know, he was, was he 48 years old, I think, <laughs> his last year, which is kind of mind-boggling. And, and only a kicker could play that long, obviously, but Bob did it at a high level for all those years. He's in the Bomber Hall of Fame, the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, and he rightly goes up in the Bomber Ring of Honor tonight. He is from, uh, you know, the East, but he made Winnipeg his permanent home, and he's a great citizen of our city, and it's going to be a special night tonight to see his name go up in that Ring of Honor. A lot of people don't realize he won the Heck Creighton Award as the the top performer in university football as a quarterback. I asked him if maybe he could dust off his uh, cleats and and maybe be the uh, third or fourth uh, string option for the Bombers. But uh, he said he thought about it for a little while and and decided that probably not the the best way to go. Bob is is just absolutely one of the great, not only Blue Bomber players of all time, but you mentioned, Bob, the fact that he lives here and he's just such a big part of the community. He was accessible as a player and he remains to be one of those just genuine nice guys and he'll always take time for you. Yeah, he's fantastic. And, of course, his story is so good in that he was cut. He loves to tell the story. I don't know if he told you guys or not. He was cut, I think, ten times mm-hmm. before the Bombers. He finally won a spot on the Bombers, He, you know, and he was so happy at that time. But he was he still feared being cut just about every year he played. So, yeah, he's a, he's a great guy, wonderful guy, and it's uh, – so appropriate that he becomes the 12th Blue Bomber to go up in the Ring of Honor. He actually told a story about being in Hamilton and being uh, cut uh, while he's consuming his pregame meal, having his whole family <laughs> there. So a good lesson to the rest of us as well on yeah. picking yourself up and keep trying if you have something you want to do. Yeah, well, he certainly did that. <laughs> and, of course, his reputation as a kicker into the wind is uh, one of the one of the best in the league. Bob Irving, what time's the pregame start? It's at 5.30, and we will have a spirited discussion about the Bomber quarterback situation and about all the quarterbacks who become free agents at the end of this year, including Jeremiah Mazzoli of Hamilton, along with Matt Nichols and Chris Strebler of Winnipeg. What should the Bombers do at quarterback when the season ends? Well, I guess we'll find out tonight starting at 5.30. Bob Irving, thank you for joining us, sir. Okay, you guys. Kickoff at 7.30. It's retro night, by the way, and Bob Cameron is inducted to the Ring of Honor, going up in the Ring of Honor at halftime. Let me read you this excerpt to introduce our next guest. Dr. Jen Gunter is the vagina's most passionate defender and publicist. 
The Vagina Bible is a practical, informative, and hilarious guide to women's health, but it's also a biography about the most misunderstood and mysterious part of the human body. This book reads like a film, and like a great filmmaker, Dr. Gunter has delivered an intimate and loving portrait of the vagina. The vagina gets the star treatment, and it's about time. That's from Elaine Laney Gossip Louie, author of Listen to the Squawking Chicken and co-host of The Social. The book, The Vagina Bible, launched just last night at McNally Robinson and Dr. Jen Gunter. Winnipeg's own Dr. Jen Gunter is live in studio with us. Dr. Gunter, good morning to you. Good morning. Let's start with some of the descriptions that were used there in that review in terms of, uh, you know, mysterious, perhaps misunderstood. Uh, where where are you coming from with, with that and, and, and why do you think that is? Well, I think we've been speaking about women's bodies almost entirely with euphemism since the beginning of time. And if you can't say the word vagina or vulva or clitoris out in public, you're implying that it's shameful. And when things are shameful, you can't talk about it. And it's really interesting. I mean, women come into my office and they can't say the words, they can't say the the words with their friends. And so I think, you know, part of the mystery has been that we've just never spoken about things publicly. We talk a lot about pro- prostate cancer, colon cancer, and and the idea that, that men quite literally die of embarrassment. I can only imagine that we could say the same thing for women over time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we see also, you know, many women, you know, having... I guess the best I would say is subpar sexual experiences because they aren't able to advocate for what they want, maybe with their partner or ask their doctor for help because they just don't even know. So yeah, I mean, shame hurts everybody. It's I like to say shame is a wasted emotion. There should be nothing shameful about your body. Is that about the converse, not knowing? understanding your own body or about just not wanting to talk about your body? Well, I think it's both. I think if you've never been able to speak about it, if you've never had quality sex education, then how do you actually know what's going on, right? So if you don't have, it's like, I don't know very much about cars. So when my car makes a noise, like I have no idea what's going on with it because I don't know anything about cars because I've never been taught. So I think that Part of the issue is that we've done a very poor job of, you know, educating people from the get-go about their bodies, about how they work. So then they have the actual words to use when they're having symptoms. They can describe things in a way that, you know, that are relatable to physicians, to providers, to partners. So they're all speaking the same language. And why don't you talk about advocating for what you want sexually? And one of the things that is highlighted here, it says condoms should be used with a lubricant. And I think a lot of people probably... Not aware of that? Exactly. Yeah, there's, you know, because we don't talk about these things. So, yeah, condoms are meant to be used with a lubricant. They're more likely to break without. And uh, certainly if you partner with women, they're more likely to be painful. And certainly, obviously, if you have anal sex, you need to use a lubricant as well. So, um, so yeah, so you're more likely to get friction-related um, discomfort without uh, without a lube. And you never want to use uh, condoms with spermicide because spawn- the spermicide uh, shortens the shelf life of the condom and uh, actually doesn't help. And spermicide is actually harmful harmful to the vagina. You're coming at this from a clinical side, but there's also just the, the pleasure component right. of things that have to happen too. And I and they both work with one another. Absolutely. It's sort of like you have to know about your parts and how they work so you can work them how you want to work them, right? It's sort of like understanding the basic mechanics of your body. So if you know where the clitoris is, how it's innervated, how it gets stimulated, you're more likely to, you know, have a better sexual experience, I think. 
So why do you think this is so divisive? I'm waiting for the first text message. You can't use all these words on the radio. I'm waiting for it to come. It hasn't started, so I'm, first of all, surprised by that. But you take a ton of heat on social media about the things that you discuss, the way you talk about them, and you're not scared to go after people that you think are dispelling and purveying false information. Why is this such an evangelical cause for you? Well, I hate lies, um, and I'm I'm just sort of done with the fact that we can't talk about women's bodies. I mean, I'm a female gynecologist, and if I can't say these words, who can? So I feel like I should be setting the standard. So if I can do it, then if that gives other people courage to stand up, then that's great, and that's the definition of extending privilege. So if I can do it, and it's because it's going to be easier for me, then maybe then someone else will say, well, if Jen Gunter can talk that way, so can I. And yeah, as for Twitter and heat, sure, bring it on. I can deal with it. Um, I'm armed with facts, and everybody who comes at me is armed with lies or puritanical beliefs. And I just, I like, have no time for people like that. And I'm happy to put them in their place. The thing I hear about that too is a lot of women who follow me and men who follow me on Twitter are like, I love your takedowns. And, you know, someone the other day told me that she reads my Twitter feed in the morning to get herself psyched up to go to work. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a song you listen to, exactly. like, to fight back, right? Exactly. It's like a rallying cry. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just not taking crap from anybody. What is the most common thing you hear from people in terms of a like a misconception or a misperception in, when it comes to uh, a what you're talking about, but also just the heat you take? You know, when they come back at you, what what, what are they trying to say? Um, well, so I guess. You know, a lot of it is about, I think when people reply to me, they're like, well, that's not how it works. I'm like, well, actually, I'm the expert, so I get to say that's how it works. I think there's been a bit of a a huge issue in our society with fake news and people believing what they want to believe. Uh, and I certainly um, have no problem explaining to people what an expert actually is. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, the the most common, I would say, uh, thing that actually people uh, get into it with me on Twitter is probably over um, the facts about, uh, you know, uh, abortion access and uh, reproductive health care and contraception. So, you know, there's a lot of lies about abortion. Uh, but, you know, punishing women gets votes. And so that's why people lie about it. I think that's very true. I think the, uh, there is something out there that's, I think increasingly concerning about the idea that women might be more under attack now than we were, say, 10 years ago. And it might be because the prevalence of social media allows us to see those things and then feel those things. But it could also just speak to an underlying issue out there that uh, that we're being pushed back down. Yeah, I think it's both. I think that it's social media is such a megaphone. And I think that you should never underestimate how organized many of these forces are. You know, there's been long-term sort of political strategies, definitely in those states, and I'm sure it's the same up here, about how to erode reproductive rights, how to, um, you know, remove rights from, uh, from, from trans folks, remove rights from the LGBT community. So I think that these are very orchestrated things, and they come across as sort of being, oh, people are just chatting on social media, but it's not. This is very malignant, um, and people need to know that it's, um, that you have to stand up for everybody's rights because everybody matters. And um, and I would just say my experience in the States, I'm starting to see that being mirrored up here and you guys have an election coming up. So if someone has said or hinted that, that they are uh, going to do something, trust me, they will. And we want to talk about porn in a moment, but we mentioned vagina profiteers and how on Twitter you 
uh, take them, you expose them and take them down. What is a vagina profiteer? Yeah, so a vagina profiteer is someone selling you a useless product for your vagina. You know, they're capitalizing on the shame and the misinformation. So whether that's someone selling you a douche or telling you to put wipes in your vagina or someone like a, Gwyneth Paltrow. Those eggs or whatever the heck yeah, they exactly. were. Yeah, exactly. Someone like Gwyneth Paltrow selling you jade eggs for your vagina or vaginal steaming herbs. If it, you know, it's all this misinformation that's weaponized to sell product. Those are vagina profiteers. I was saying to Dr. Gunter off air that um, in this day and age, it feels like we should have more power as women than ever before. And we're all more enlightened and women should, shouldn't be feeling the shame that way. Maybe even 15 years ago we did because sex is a much more open conversation. And still, I think. What is it? But, but still, <laughs> we have so many people uh, in this world who are still waiting to experience uh, orgasm the way they're supposed to or have their first great experience. And so what do we contribute to that? Because if we're talking about it more, but still finding that as a result, does it come back to things like Brett said, you know, porn? Well, I think I think it comes back to lack of accurate factual information, right? So, yeah, I mean, something like, you know, 80% of women have faked an orgasm. And actually, I, I couldn't believe that study wasn't 100%. But, you know, maybe there's some people who've, you know, had, had just really great sex from the beginning. But I think it comes back to one, not knowing how your parts work. Work, but two, so we have a very interesting society. We sell everything with sex, right? Everything sold with sex. But yet we don't talk about sex in ways that people can really enjoy it. And because of that, especially if you don't have quality sex education in schools, if the first time you have any exposure to sex is pornography, you're going to think that's what people are actually doing when pornography is acting. It's if, not reference material. It's not reference material. Now, if that's what your erotica and that's what turns you on, that's great. Everybody's turned on by different things, you know, like, you know, some people like to watch an episode of Game of Thrones and they see Jon Snow and I'm not saying that would be me, but you know, um, you know, there's, you know, you get turned on by different things and that's great. But I that's, said it makes guys think they have to act a certain exactly. way, but Brett made another good point that it might make women feel like they have Absolutely. to act a certain way. I think it gives people these scripts that are fake, right? So we all know that because we all learn driver's ed and we all drive a car uh, that when we see Fast and Furious, that's not how people drive cars, but we don't have that same sort of analogy with porn. So if that's all people see, they're going to think that's real. I mean, for example, only 3% of porn scenes with heterosexual couples have condoms. Like, so there's actually some data to show that if that's the first time, if you haven't had quality sex education, you're less likely to use condoms if you watch porn. If you've already been sexually experienced and no condoms are important, it doesn't have an impact on you. So again, it gets back to being educated. Let's talk about that because we've said, you know, uh, Greg, you've made the comment before you're still waiting to have the, the sex talk. talk. The yeah. sex talk with your dad. With my mom or my dad. And, and so not going to happen with my mom. And my dad's listening now, guaranteed. Is he, is he sending you a message? He's calling No, but it's, it's probably happening right now. And he's probably apologizing for the fact that he didn't have it. But but never mind the whole idea of, of the quality of sex that you might have at some point in your life. There, there was a really dangerous time there where what you had to do in preparation was completely lost on, I think, an entire generation with regards to condom use, with, with regard to respect for women, respect for your own body, whether you were a man or a woman, and, and what was appropriate at what age, and, and all that different stuff. It got so muddled 
in my mind. Am I alone in, in, in living in this, uh, in, this, in this belief? Well, I'm not sure if it got muddled or if it just never progressed. I think, I think we all think we should be further along than we are because we could openly talk about so many other subjects, right? So I think maybe that's the take. But yeah, I mean, we're still having to talk about consent, right? In 2019, we're still having to say, hey, you know, having sex with an unconscious person is rape. Like this isn't, you know, we should be better than this now, you know, because because we've been aware for a while. But again, you know, we shame the woman who's assaulted. Um, it's her fault, right? So again, it gets back to um, this sort of weaponization of women's bodies. And so being able to speak the truth, I think, is a very important way to sort of get get beyond that. And also getting all our allies like, like you guys on board about, you know, talking about this as well, setting examples for men saying, hey, guys, this is not okay. Should men read this book too, not just women. Absolutely. Everybody with a vagina and anybody who's vagina adjacent should read this book. <laughs> That's adjacent three times in our program today. It's a great word, it vagina is. adjacent. If you love a vagina, if you have a vagina, I mean, if you're a dad and you want to know like the pressures your daughter is being exposed to, right? Like the messaging about tampons, if, you know, you want to know that information, if you're, um, you know, both my kids read it, they're, they're 16, they're boys. Um, my son, uh, who gay, read it. He's 16. And he's like, I'm a platinum gay. And I read that book. <laughs> so that means he's he's never touched a vagina because right. he was born by C-section. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I wondered what the, I just thought, man, he, you know, he's given himself a title. That's above gold star. Yeah, yeah it's above gold star. Yeah. I mean, so I get educated by my kids, but they know all this stuff. And, and I asked them, I said, knowing all this information, does this make you more likely to want to be sexually, you know, active or less? And they're like, well, actually less because none of this seems like really like, you know, it just seems like it's regular and normal. So again, we know that quality sex education doesn't encourage kids to go out and have sex, just like teaching them how to drive safely doesn't, you know. Man, she, this must be the house to go over as a teen, eh? Like, I'm just going to go I'm just gonna talk to your mom for a second. Can you just whip up some uh, roast and something else and we'll have a side conversation of vagina, please? Dr. Jen Gunter, she hails from Winnipeg. She has written a book called The Vagina Bible, just launched last night at McNally Robinson. Dr. Gunter, what a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.